follow this uh, recording and stuff, please don't feel like you have lost the right to speak in church. Uh, there's nothing more boring than an entirely white congregation. For whatever reason, that pigment in our skin causes us to not be able to move our mouth. I, I don't know why. But uh, let's take some notes from our brothers and sisters around the world. And uh, if you think something is good, say so. If you think it is not scriptural, raise your hand and then say so. <laughs> All right, let's, let's get into the Word. It is uh, August 30th, 2009. Our message this morning is called Cheapened Words. Cheapened Words. So you'll turn to Numbers 23. And uh, tell me when you're there. There. Golly, that's fast. Yeah, I know. It could, it could be. could be cheating. David's Bible is so big, when he turns his pages, this side of the room's hair moves. <laughs> I want to read you something. Uh, I have got all kind of definitions that are not really definitions. You know, I put things in terms that I understand them, um, and that's not always fair. So I wanted to read to you a definition of the word, word. Uh, and this, this comes from an actual dictionary. It says, a word, a unit of language consisting of one or more spoken sounds or their written representation that functions as a principal carrier of meaning. When we think about word, though, I want you to understand principally what it is for is to transmit or convey meaning. When you have a thought up here and you want to transfer that thought somewhere else to someone else via email, Twitter, whatever it may be, we express it in words. Because of that, it's important how we use them. And I wanted you to think about some common scenarios that happen in life and Think about what it does to our words. I promise we're going to read numbers, but I just got you there ahead of me for a reason. Think about this. Have you ever seen a parent tell a child, if you do that again, you are going to get a spanking? Right? Does the spanking always follow the next event? I mean, they had this kid live next door to me in Denham Springs, Louisiana. I had been working on a table. You know how hard it is to put an antique finish on a table? Many, many, many coats of polyurethane and polish. And, and the kid walked up with a water hose, right? The mom says, if you do that, his name was Damien, by the way. <laughs> if you do that, Damien, I'm going to spank you. He looked at her with a, yeah, right, not only hose down my table, but hose down his mama. Yeah. I watched him one day stand in the yard. She said, Damien, don't do that to the flowers. The flowers that she was planting, he was breaking off. Right? <gasps> horrible, horrible. And yet we have all, at times, been guilty of not doing what we said we were going to do, haven't we? Watch this. The child not only does it again, but many more times and several times after that. Each episode is followed by a repeated warning. Sometimes the warning gets more aggressive. If you do that, I'll spank you ten times. I'll spank you and ground you. All of it is lessened by the fact that the parent didn't do it the very first time, right? When correction finally comes, it's either more or less aggressive than originally stated, right? Parent's frustrated, so now it really does wear him out. Or maybe the parent's just tired of dealing with this, and so instead of the 
uh, corporate punishment that was promised. Now it's just, you're grounded. Get away from me. I don't want to see you. Right? Ostracizing. Look at the unintended lessons that this causes. And I promise we're not talking about children and discipline today. Authority figures don't always mean what they say, or what they say isn't always true. Isn't that kind of the message that's being given? I may say this is going to happen, and you can wait and see it may or may not. At times, authority figures must be taken very seriously, while at other times, not so much. This attitude is then projected on others in the person's life. Does my buddy mean it when he says he's going to be there at 7 a.m.? Or is it just one of those things people say? When my teacher said, you will fail this class if you don't take notes. I mean, was that one of those things I was supposed to take seriously, or was it just words? When the leader said, if you get off of this path, your life could be at risk. Is that really true, or is it just kind of an overstated warning? Have you ever seen this in the drug campaigns? In the early days, combating marijuana, they had films that displayed someone who took a single drag of a marijuana cigarette as completely losing their mind. It had an unintended consequence. What do you think happened to the young people when they first took a first drag and that did not happen? It emboldened them on the track they were on. What happens when we're duplicitous? What happens when we say things we don't mean? It develops an attitude of, I know we said it, but come on. By the time a child has become an adult, he views words as cheap and frequently says things that he doesn't mean. Additionally, he expects others to do the same. This is his worldview, so why isn't everybody else is that way? Now think about this, right? Uh, David and I meet in Walmart. I haven't seen David in 20 years. Okay? I look over and I say, oh God, did he see me? He's Oh, no, did he see me? We realize we've seen each other. Then what do you do? Oh, brother, praise the Lord! So good to see you! Man, we should get together sometime and do lunch. Now, first off, I was not praising the Lord when I saw David. But why did I say it? To ease the conversation. Secondly, I'm not really hoping to do lunch with David. It was a way of gracefully leading the conversation. So in the space of three sentences, I've said three things that I did not mean, and he's learned to reply in kind. Come on, watch this one. How about this? Hey, man, how you doing today? Well, the guy's dog just got run over. His, his daughter has run away from home, and he lost his job. But what does he say? Fine, thanks. And let me ask you something. When you said, hey, how you doing today? Did you care? Very rarely, huh? I, I knew a brother in the church... And I had to learn and grow. Because when I asked him how you were doing, he was honest. And the truth is, I did not want to know. Especially not right before the service. You know? And, I mean, I began wanting to run the other direction when I saw him. Because I knew it was going to be an hour of doom and gloom. What happens when we say things we don't mean? How about this one? My sister and I were standing with a brother in the Lord. He had just got through verbally berating someone. I mean, as serious as a Christian can berate someone, right? Blah, 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 blah. Praise the Lord, brother. On the telephone. Really, that's what we were just doing. We were just praising the Lord. Doesn't this cheapen our words? And don't think about other brothers and people in Walmart. Let's be honest now. Each of you does this. I do this. One of the important things to realize is God does not do this. When he says something, he actually 
means it. I used to listen to a preacher on the radio, and man, I loved him. And I got tuned into this little tick that he had, and I couldn't listen to him anymore. It was real. There was this uh, gasping for air between words, right? I went to the store, and uh, then when I was at the store, you know, I can't even breathe as much as he did. But while I was listening to him and counting the things, I noticed something I had never noticed before. Amen means so be it unto God. And while this man was preaching, I kid you not, he says, I went to the store. <gasps> amen. And while I was at the store, <gasps> amen. I'm thinking, what is amen? At the time, I really didn't know. I had to go look it up. But amen for him had become a pause word. And the end of his story was, and I met a girl who was having an abortion. Amen. What happens when our words just become sounds? And they are not conveying a meaning. Their principal purpose is no longer to convey a sincere, genuine thought from me to you. What happens when they're just window dressing? They become cheap, right? This is when you run into somebody and they say, I love you, and you're like, we'll see. Right? The young people like that. Or they're not paying attention. Who knows? But I I can keep an eye on them because it's a small church. Isn't that good? I was in a balcony of a Baptist church when I was a kid, and the brother of Elvis, Rick Stanley, was preaching. And he stopped in the middle of his message, and he said, Young man, if you don't think I can make my way up there to you, you are sadly mistaken. I listened for the rest of that entire message. Yeah, how about that? In Numbers 23, I want you to catch this statement. It'll start in the 16th verse. The Lord met with Balaam and put a message in his mouth. And said, go back to Balak and give him this message. So he went to him and found him standing beside his offering with the princes of Moab. Balak asked him, what did the Lord say? And this is interesting because it's the second time that Balaam has come to Balak. Balak's already paid Balaam and he's gotten a word from the Lord. Now he's paying him some more and getting him to come back and say something else. That's the way that it works from God. He says something to you, but you don't like it very much, so you keep seeking him, hoping for something else? Is it? Is he like Burger King, right? You order it the way you want it this window, and you pick it up at the next window. Is that how God works? No. Well, if you don't like what you hear here, just go find another church down the road, right? Is that the way God works? Then he uttered his oracle. Arise, Balak, and listen. Hear me, son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? I have received a command to bless. He has blessed, and I cannot change it. Listen to the indictment on mankind. According to this, God doesn't lie like a man. God doesn't change his mind like a man. God does not speak but not act. Like a man. God does not promise and not fulfill. Like a man. Come on now. On moving day. You've all experienced it. Anybody promise to be there and didn't show up? Anybody say they'd help you move the heaviest furniture but not actually move it? Anybody make you a promise and didn't fulfill it? Of course. This is in our nature. And because it's in our nature, we begin to put that view upon other people. 
If you don't really mean I love you when you say it, how sure are you that when somebody else says I love you, they mean it? If you don't think this is true, how many people do you know that say God will provide for me because his word says it? But they don't really believe it. No doubt that God said it. No doubt that every word of God is true, but they don't really believe it. How many of you ladies have problems with your self-esteem? The word says that you're fearfully and wonderfully made. The word says that you are beautiful in all of your ways. And you know the word says it. And you know that the word is true. But you don't believe it. We need to understand something. God is not like us. His words are not cheap. He says exactly what he means. And he means exactly what he says. The word describes this like a double-edged sword. That is great news when he says, I will have compassion on you. It is horrible news when he says, if you persist in going your own way, I will never forgive you. It's Deuteronomy 29, 19, in case you didn't have that one memorized. It's funny how we memorize all those grace scriptures, and somehow or another the others lag behind. How about, if you do not forgive, you will not be forgiven. Well, I know he said it, but I mean people say lots of things. No, God is not like that. He is not like that at all. But I've served the Lord 20 years. He said, if you do not forgive, you will not be forgiven. He didn't just say it once. It's recorded in all four Gospels. And in some of the Gospels, multiple times. How about that? Turn with me to 1 Samuel. First Samuel 15. Thank you, Adam. See what happens when y'all help me preach? We all get there faster. Praise the Lord. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It is rough when people take apart your life, isn't it? I get it full time. Every once in a while, I get encouraged when something good happens, I think. Wow, God is still with us, you know, because if I listen to the feedback that I get all of the time, I could be crawling, I, I'd hang my feet off the edge of a dime and skydive off of a nickel. But I choose to believe what God's Word says, Amen. right? I choose to believe that. Yes. Full time, we have internet, we have radio, we have marketing campaigns around. Have you noticed that even our cartoons, the cartoon figures have gotten very shapely, right? All of the guys are... And all of the girls are certain shapes. Even in our cartoons, right? All of it is trying to convey one message at you. You are not worth anything. You are not worth anything when the Bible says you are a son of God. There is an image that the world is trying to conform you to. And it is worthless. It's futile. That's why people kill themselves. It is constantly warring, raging war against your mind. Trying to devour you. The Bible tells us to not be conformed to it, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That comes with God's Word, and His Word is not cheap. In fact, the most precious substance on the earth, men's lives, has been shed in every generation for it. When you hold this book in your hand, especially in your native language, you need to realize that the men who gave it to you in English were burned on the printing presses that they printed it on. That until 1869, in Italy, it was illegal to own a Bible in any language other than Latin. I mean, that went on for centuries. From Nero's day forward, it has been banned. 
hold it. Because the world has tried to keep you from knowing what God says about you. You all in 1 Samuel 15? Yes. All right, I better get going. Twelfth uh, verse. I was told recently that I preached like a spasmatic. Right? That, that's what, and, and I believe the brother meant it with love. He said, dude, you are all over the place like a spasmatic. I said, well, imagine that you're trying to give 70 people what they need. Right? Well, he comes from a church with many thousands. I don't know how they do it. I do know that his pastor has his sermons already written out through December. I don't know how that works. I can't hear from God like that. He didn't give me the telescope. Uh, I'm praying each morning, even during the worship service, about what to preach on. Those of you that know me closely know that that's true. Many times I tell you when I walk through the door what we're going to share on. We stopped printing it in the bulletin because I didn't want for my words to be cheap. (laughs) All right, 1 Samuel 15. The brother who told me that loves me. It was a strange kind of compliment, actually. Uh, verse 20. But I did obey the Lord. Is that where I want to be? Twelve. That's right. Twenty's where we're getting to, but twelve's what I said. All right. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor <laughs> and has turned and gone on to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. Praise the Lord. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. He greeted him with a blessing from the Lord and said, I carried out God's instruction. But Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is the lowing of cattle I hear? That's called data denial, friends. Data denial is... Despite everything to the contrary as far as evidence, I'm telling you that I did it. Right? It's like a husband caught in adultery. There's a woman standing there next to him. And no, it didn't happen. Right? She's standing there, but he's going to swear it did not happen. Saul graded the prophet with the words, The Lord bless you. And then he affirmed the blessing by saying, I carried out the Lord's instructions. And Samuel's response is, why is it that I hear sheep then and cows? Because part of the Lord's instructions were destroy every single thing. From Agag right on down to the lowing sheep in the field. So where's words cheap? Listen to this. Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best, they, 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 they spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. <laughs> we totally destroyed the rest. I absolutely believe what you said, kind of part of it. If it can be done, I'll do it. That's car salesman speech, friends. That is car salesman speech. No offense to the car salesman. I was one for many years. We totally destroyed the rest. Do you get the impression that maybe for a long time in Saul's life, words spoken to him and words he spoke to other people didn't really have sincerity of meaning? That when somebody said totally go do it, it meant, you know, try mostly, kind of. You ask my little boys. I tell them to unload every piece of wood on the trailer and I come back and every piece of wood is not unloaded, there is a consequence for that. And that's not because I'm a perfect dad. 
it because it means it's especially because since it affected me. <laughs> See how selfish we all are. <laughs> since it affected me, I'm going to make sure they carried it out to the letter. Is that because it's cruel or wrong? No, we need to teach each other that we mean what we say. We need to do that. Because when you don't, it affects the way you view God's Word. Since you don't mean what you say, you don't really believe He means what He says. I know a number of women that are enduring counseling. And the counseling that they're enduring is all aimed at one thing. To get them to believe what God already says said about them. Is that really the role of a counselor? And I'm not picking on counselors. A counselor provides an opportunity to have the conversation. Okay? And that's a good thing. Hopefully there are other people in your life, pastors and all kinds of other things, that can also play that role and reinforce it. But the most amazing thing happens. People are cured when they begin to take God at His word. But why is that so difficult? The answer is we make it difficult. Because we don't usually mean what we say. Bless you, brother. Hey, if you're ever in town, stop by. You'd be south of the border and say that. Go with me to the islands in Mexico. You go with me to the islands of Mexico. Say, hey, friends, if you're ever in Sugar Land, stop by. Because they will be there the next morning. They took you at your word. I was in Israel, and there was a particularly difficult brother that was on our trip. And I wanted to sleep worse than life itself. I mean, that's all I was focused on was I needed to sleep. I'd been up for, I think it was about my third day. And every time we were nearing the end of a conversation about the baptism in the Holy Ghost, it would go on and on and on. I jokingly said at the end, Hey, brother, you ever in Baton Rouge? Come see me. And to my horror and chagrin, the senior pastor over the whole group stopped and said, Brother, I believe Eric's a man on his word, and you should do that. He wouldn't say that if he didn't mean it. And I'm sitting there thinking, Oh, God, I did not mean it. I did not mean it. He said, Why don't you all exchange addresses? I was horrified. Well, why? I had said it. Why was I horrified? Y'all think me a bad person all of a sudden? We all have got room to grow, I promise. Stop. Oh, Saul answered, The soldiers brought them back from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Stop, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me. Saul replied, why is he not scared? Because words are just words. They're just cheap. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. This is like that scene in the movie. You don't understand the words that are coming out of my mouth. In his mind, he did because he mostly did. I mean, you didn't literally mean what you said, did you? Because nobody else does. But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely, hear that word? It's kind of like totally. I completely destroyed the Amalekites, and brought back Agag, their king. Well, I mean, I'm pregnant except for the baby. How does that work? You know? How does that work? I completely destroyed the Amalekites, 
and I brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Well, I destroyed all the Amalekites, but I brought back their king. And I wiped out all their sheep except the best ones, because I'm going to devote them to God. But he is convinced in his heart he's obeyed. How does that work? It must be from a lifetime of corrupted thinking about words. So God corrects him. Tells him he's going to tear the kingdom out of his hands. And look at verse 29. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind. For he is not a man that he should change his mind. That's good. Our God does not look at speech the way that we do. And when the Bible says you're given account for every idle word, an idle word is not the word between words. <laughs> you know, it's like an engine that it's at idle. You got some brothers like me, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. You ever been trying to sleep on an airplane? Idle words, man, right next to you. Our God is not like a man who uses his words cheaply. Turn with me to Psalm 12. See what God's word is like. Two of you are there. Help me out. Cheap stone, just cheap words. Flawless. 
That means that no matter what way you turn God's word, no matter what light you put it under, whether it's ultraviolet or not, no matter what test you put it under, it has no flaw in it. Like silver refined in a furnace of clay, purified seven times. Let's imagine that every word that came out of your mouth you stopped and thought about seven times. Should I say this to John? Is it true? Seven times? Do you think that what did come out of your mouth would be worth hearing? One of the characteristics of my closest friends is none of them are uh, chatty Cathy's. My closest friends all have measured speech. I don't. I don't know what they think about me. <laughs> I talk all of the time. It's a problem. But I've noticed that my closest friends are men that contemplate what they say. And so when they speak, it's worth listening to. It's not one of many thousands of things. When they say something, it has meaning. I didn't realize until I started thinking about that common characteristic that I really value it. Because to me, it means that they must mean what they say. Now, there are extremes you could take this to, obviously. I don't think God is glorified by you putting on a burlap sack and hiding in a cave or a hole somewhere like some have done throughout centuries. Or vows of silence. But what about a vow that says, I will only speak the words of God? Doesn't the scripture already tell us that? O oh Lord, you will keep us safe and protect us from such people forever. What kind of people? People who have loose speech. The wicked freely strut about when what is vile is honored among men. In other words, it doesn't matter whether what I said was true. The way in which I said it, you should be so enamored by that you honor it. Come on, we've never seen a day like that. We've never seen a day where what a man says doesn't have to have substance as long as he says it well. Right? We've never seen a day where you might overlook somebody with impeccable character because he doesn't speak well. But honor a man who has no character simply because he speaks well. Come on, our society is so rife with it that it's how we actually choose our leaders. I was in a church where they passed around the pastoral search committee criteria. It was full of building campaigns. It was full of how much offerings had read and how well accepted the man's speeches were around the globe. You know what it did not say? Anything about the man's character. That he lost a child and lived through it. That he had a horrible disappointment in his life and yet loved the Lord with all of his heart. None of those things were there. It was unimportant to the people. We want him to speak well. We want him to fill seats. I don't think the Lord chooses men like that. While we're here, just because we're going to get like a bonus while we're here. Look at Psalm 15. Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live on your holy hill? He whose walk is blameless and who does what is righteous, who speaks truth from his heart. Speaks truth from his heart. So tell me, do I look fat in these jeans? <laughs> That's why there's a pulpit here. Come on now. Truth from his heart. Can you say a true thing and it not be God? Of course you can. You know, among all the people I know, you're the least attractive. <laughs> Come on. We need to be edified. But that does not mean we need to be lying. 
isn't this baby beautiful? He certainly is unique. <laughs> I love I love as people get older. My my sweet grandmother is now at my mother's house, and I asked her about one of my little nieces. You know, hey, what do you think about the niece? She goes, she sure is ugly. <laughs> not not my nieces in this church. I don't know how to describe. It was a baby that was born, uh, and Grandma didn't think the baby was pretty, and she lost that filter somewhere. That filter that you know keeps you from saying things like that. And so every time you asked her, she said, "Yeah, that baby sure is ugly." Right? Not every true thing needs to be said, but everything that you say does need to be true. Come on, can you appreciate the difference? And has no slander on his tongue, who does his neighbor no wrong and casts no slur on his fellow man, who despises a vile man but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps his oath even when it hurts. Anybody keeps their oath while it's pleasant, but the righteous keep their oath even when it hurts. Think back, friends. How many times have you taken a vow before God and not kept it? This is a serious matter. It's a whole lot more serious than the church world would have you believe. To look at somebody and say, I promise, and not do it is a serious matter. To join hands with someone and enter into covenant with them, and I'm not just speaking about marriage, is a serious matter. God's word is purified. It's refined. And when we keep our oaths, even when it hurts, we're called unshakable. Look at that last verse. He who does these things will never be shaken. Never be shaken. Turn with me to Judges 11. Non-refined words, impure words, words that have not been passed through the Holy Ghost filter can cause you a serious problem. a legalistic kind of obedience that says, if you say you're going to be there at 701 and at 702, we're holding you to your word. I've been a part of that. It doesn't work. But you know what we're looking for? When you say something, do you mean it? Did you make every effort to try to do that? Right? Uh, If you believe God's called you to something and your actions do not show effort in that direction, we do not believe you. You know why? God doesn't. Right? A tree is known by its fruit, not by its speech. In fact, trees, as far as I can tell, have never had the power of speech. Never. Not even before the fall. It's not because we're harsh. It's because what else are you going to judge somebody by in an age when everybody lies? You look to see what men do. Y'all in Judges 7? Shouldn't be. You should be in 11. (laughs) Judges 11. Uh, look at these first uh, three verses of this chapter. Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. That explains why he's a Gileadite. And his mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons. So uh, Mr. Gilead had a wife, and he had a prostitute, and he had sons by them both. And now we're going to talk about one of the sons, Jephthah. Also bore him sons. And when they were grown up, when they grew, were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You are not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. 
So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a group of adventurers gathered around him and followed him. We're not going to read the next part of this. We're going to skip down to 29. But the same people who drove him away and said, you will have no inheritance, later said, oh, please come back. We kind of need your help. You'll never have any inheritance here. Oh, please come back. We'll give you whatever you want. You can rule this all. Is that duplicitous speech? Double-minded? Unstable in all that you do? It seems that maybe Jephthah grew up around people who did not mean what they said. And said things that they did not mean. Maybe since his father and his birth mother had such a strange relationship, it taught him strange things about speech. I've noticed that my children listen. They listen when I'm on the phone, and they listen when I hang up the phone. Love you, brother. See you soon. Dear God, I hope they never call me again. Oh, they hear that. Sure, brother, we'll try to get there whenever we can. Uh, Hope to see you soon. Jesus, please save me from having to go to that. I don't want to go. They hear that. Well, Jephthah was no different. He grew up in a house and he heard all of those things. Let's see how it affected his life. Pick up with me in the 29th verse. Jephthah and his adventurers have come to save Israel. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. God didn't ask him for such a vow. In fact, the prophecies already come in the previous verses that he would win. This just kind of floated right out of his mouth, though. What is usually kept inside of your house? Is that usually where you keep your livestock? I mean, I don't know about y'all. I come from kind of a country background at times. But we never kept our livestock inside. Whatever comes out the front door of my house, I'll sacrifice you think maybe that was a rash word? Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from Aurora to the vicinity of Minnith, as far as abel Kerem. Thus Israel subdued Amnon. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of tambourines? She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh, my daughter, you have made me miserable and wretched because of a vow I made. Who made him miserable and wretched? He claimed his daughter did. What was she doing besides dancing in his victory, excited about what the Lord had done? Can you make a vow carelessly? Well, of course. People have debated for centuries. Did he sacrifice her as a burnt offering or not? The general consensus, because it's a whole lot more palatable, seems to be that he dedicated her to the temple. And there are a great many number of spiritual uh, wisdom and advice that is given that seems to point in that direction. But this poor girl's whole life was affected because a man had learned to use his words carelessly. Do you think that's what God intends? Probably not. Our rash words definitely have consequences. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 23. 
that I can preach like a spasmatic. Look at the 21st verse. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to pay it. For the Lord your God will certainly demand it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from making a vow, you will not be guilty. Whatever your lips utter, you must be sure to do. Because you made your vow freely to the Lord your God with your own mouth. I know, saints, that's Old Testament, right? Somebody want to explain to me Ananias and Sapphira then? Anybody want to take me up with that spiritual debate? It was after the cross. It was after the resurrection. It was after Pentecost. It was in the dispensation of grace. Saints, God's dispensation has always been grace. There are not seven different ways God's dealt with mankind. That's a lie. Man made up. There's been one God, one way of salvation. He does not change like shifting shadows. If it helps you to think about it in different ages, bless you. You're wrong, but bless you. What does it mean that God won't hold you guiltless? Would you like to know what it says in Hebrew? It says God won't hold you guiltless. How about that? Wouldn't we like to just skip over that? Wouldn't you like to forget about it? Turns me to numbers. There is a prescribed manner for getting out of vows, and it's probably appropriate that I teach you this now. Numbers 30, start with me in the first verse. Moses said to the heads of the tribes of Israel, This is what the Lord commands. When a man makes a vow to the Lord, or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word, but must do everything he said. When a young woman, still living in her father's house, makes a vow to the Lord and obligates herself by a pledge, and her father hears about the vow or pledge, but says nothing to her, then all her vows... And every pledge by which she obligated herself will stand. You, you hear this? The father does not even have to say, yes, I agree with it. If he gives his, hear this word, tacit approval to it. If he does not stand against the vow she made, she's obligated to it. But if her father forbids her when he hears about it, None of her vows or pledges by which she obligated herself will stand. The Lord will release her because her father has forbid her. This works right on down through a husband and a wife. It works right on down through those that have no authority figure over them. He shows in every instance the same principle at work. If you have made a vow foolishly, you appeal to the one who is over you and say, I'm sorry, I should never have done this. Will you release me? And they have the power to do it and God will honor it. But friends, this is a far cry from not caring whether your word is right. Acting as if God heard it, but he won't hold it against you. The Bible definitely teaches us that we must do what we say. And what kind of people would we be as his representatives if we call him the word of God, but our word's not even as good as the word of man? Not even honest. Say, well, he knows my heart. Well, I've heard that lie so many times. He does know your heart, do you? I read a book recently where a woman had been saved 20 years. Through a dream, a revelation, some prophecy, some supernatural event, this pastor realized that she was missing the grace of God. She was headed for damnation. He actually, the 
the pastor in the Philippines said he saw her in flames and said, Lord, why? She refused to forgive her father. He said, but Lord, she prayed the sinner's prayer. She attended my church 20 years faithfully. My word says if you do not forgive, you will not be forgiven. God means exactly what he says, saints. He means exactly what he says. And just because our words are cheap to us doesn't mean his words are cheap to him. When he wanted to embody himself, we say that the word became flesh. There was nothing cheap about that act. There was nothing cheap about the way he walked, lived, ministered, and died before us. And it was flawless. You will never find a statement where Jesus said something and did something else. Never. You will never find a time in which you could not trust the words that came out of his mouth. In fact, 2,009 years later, all these years after his birth, we are still clinging to his word as if our life depended on it. But because our word is cheap, sometimes we think parts of his word really don't mean what it says. Turn with me to Matthew 5. We're going to wrap this up here in a minute. I want to... After this verse, I want to return our focus to God's word. Not so much our word, but God's. It's just that you need to realize there's a relationship between the way we view each other's word and the way we view God. You know anybody that had a really unwholesome relationship with their father and then struggled to view God correctly? Well, of course. Of course. Our early authority figures teach us the proper or improper view of God. If your dad was an abusive alcoholic that beat you every day, it can be difficult to see God as loving and merciful, even though the Word says it. Well, the same is true of our words. If you are in an environment where you are swimming in insincere speech, when you read God's Word about you, it can be difficult to believe it. I know more people that can quote to me a scripture that they no more believe about their own life. They don't have a problem believing it in my life. They don't have a problem believing it in someone else's life. But when it comes to believing it in their life, it's different. How about he has made us competent ministers? Paul said that to the Corinthian church. He has made us competent. But we have a hard time believing that, huh? Friends, do you think that Peter believed Jesus could walk on water? He was watching him do it. There could be no doubt he could walk on water. Who did Peter have a problem believing could walk on water? Peter. Even though the Lord said, get out of the boat, come here, walk. We drowned in our disbelief. We drowned in it. So I want to read you 533, and we'll move on after this. 5.33. Again, you have heard that it was said to people long ago, Do not break your oath, but keep your oaths that you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of a great king. Wow, and he's standing there. He is that great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Before the Grecian formula. Simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. This admonition is repeated twice more in the scripture. This would elevate our speech to saying exactly, exactly what we meant. 
You wouldn't have to say, but Casey, I really mean it this time. I promise. Brother, look, I'll put it in writing for you because it's true. Because everything I'd ever said to Casey was true. He would have no reason to doubt it. There's a Jason Upton song that says, What reason did he ever give you to doubt him? Boy, what a great question. His word is flawless. It's our word. Unfortunately, that's not. First Peter 4.11 says, If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. Turn with me to Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. We're going to be in the first chapter. I want you to hear how Paul says this to a church that was struggling a little bit. Y'all have never struggled a little bit, have you? It's a good thing. I knew I was completely alone in that. 2 Corinthians 1.18 But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. It's not duplicitous. It's not double-minded. It's not unstable. It's not back and forth. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me, and Silas, and Timothy, was not yes and no. But in him it has always been yes. I read this and didn't understand it for many years. Does that mean God says yes to everything I say? No, it's not what he's saying at all. He's saying when he says yes, he means it. He doesn't flip-flop. He's not back and forth. And if he said he can deliver you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son he loves, he meant it when he said it. He's not going to do a halfway job. If he said, he who began a good work and you will be faithful to complete it, he meant it. But to him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen, amen, so be it is spoken to us, to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. When God makes a promise, it is trustworthy. We're going to move on to something else here about God's word, but I want to give you one note, especially you charismaniacs. His spirit in you, a deposit guaranteeing what is to come, does not mean that because you move in a spiritual gift, you pray in other tongues, or you prophesy, or whatever it may be, distinguishing of spirits, that that guarantees for you what is to come. It means that His Holy Spirit deposited in you, whom you are interacting with, who you are living with, staying in step with, guarantees that you will arrive at the destination He is sending you. It is not like a certificate that you hold on to. I have this, and so I've got you. You have to take me. He's a person. And if you do not grieve him, but listen to what he says, you will always arrive where you should be. You'll be in the place called there. Psalm 19. I'll read to you. You don't have to turn anymore. I can feel that you're worn out with this. In Psalm Here's the spasmatic. I'm getting after it. In Psalm 19, I want you to hear these words. It starts in verse 7, if you happen to be the note-taking kind. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. 
The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. When God said this about his word, it is true. It can be believed. I want to give you some things that God said that are not cheap. You won't have to turn to them because I'm going to paraphrase them. If you're one of those people like me that at times is struggling, Lord, what should I do in this situation? I know that's not many of you, but a few of you like me. Listen closely. God is not like us. He does not use his words cheaply. You can believe him when he says you can be called a son of God. A son of the king of the universe. You can find that in John 1, 12. You can believe him when he says he will help you when you're in trouble. You can find that in Psalm 46, 1. You can believe him when he says he strengthens the weary. You can find that in Isaiah 40, 29. You can believe him when he says he will lead you in the way that you should go. Lord, I don't know what to do. Well, his word says in Psalm 32, 8 that he will lead you in the way you should go. When you need, you can believe him when you love him and seek him. And he says, you will be found. Proverbs 8, 17. You can believe him when he says he will have compassion on you. Not an angry, vengeful God. Despite the great awakening and all of those great sermons, our God is described as compassionate far more than he's described as angry. That's Psalm 103, 13. You can believe him when he says he will hear you when you pray to him. 1 John 5, 14 says we can have this confidence that if we pray to him, he will hear us. You can believe him when he says he will protect you and you're going in and you're coming out. Psalm 121, 7 and 8 says that. You know, this is the first scripture I ever learned. And I learned it under threat. I was to be paddled if I didn't have it by the end of the week because the militant Christian school I was at did that kind of thing. It has served me so well. Every time I am really in trouble, in the King James English, as much as I hate it, comes back to me, I will lift my eyes unto the mountains from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord, the maker of the heavens and the earth. And immediately, I feel God's help. Don't feel bad about making your kids learn scripture. His love for you is unshakable. And you can believe it because Isaiah 54, 10 says, If he has to remove mountains or pass you through fire, his love for you cannot be shaken. But you can also believe him in Deuteronomy 29, 19, when he says, If you keep going your own way, he will never forgive you. Never. Both are true. He is all of those good things. And he has also done incredibly hard thing. <clears throat> our word, our Bible, was written over 1,500 years. There were more than 40 authors. They were kings, peasants, philosophers, fishermen, poets, statesmen, and scholars. Moses was a political leader. He was trained in Egyptian universities. Peter was a fisherman, Amos a herdsman, Joshua a military general, 
Luke a doctor, Daniel a prime minister, Solomon a king, Matthew a tax collector, Paul a Jewish rabbi. And yet there's one scarlet theme running through it all. Our God is able to help you in your darkest hour, and he wants to restore you to himself. The Bible's been read by more people and published in more languages than any other book in history. The United Bible Society in 1997 said 71,500,000 Bibles and books of the Bible have been distributed around the world during our modern age. That's 8,162 copies per hour, nearly 200,000 copies every day and night. And with all of that examination, not one of his promises has ever been proven to be factually incorrect. Not one. You know, you can't say that about the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon mentions hundreds of cities and peoples and animals that never existed on the North American continent. You can't say it about the New World Translation of the Jehovah's Witness. Any credible Greek and Hebrew scholar says that it's laughable, a joke as far as scholarship. You cannot say that about other religious texts, but you can say it about your Bible. It was written on material that perishes, Yet it has more manuscript evidence than any ten pieces of classical literature combined. There is in existence today more than 5,300 copies of the Greek New Testament alone, and all dating to that first and second century. Altogether, there's more than 24,000 manuscript copies of portions of the New Testament from that era. There is no other document from antiquity that comes even close. The closest is the Iliad by Homer has 643 copies. What reason do we have to doubt his word? None of those things, none of those things move me. What moves me is that he spoke to me and it has changed my life. And I have been around lots of people and watched their lives change. I can already see a difference in Nolan's life. I can already see the difference. Nolan's not perfect. Eric's certainly not perfect, but his word has made all the difference in my life. His word is not cheap, saints. It will change you. We're going to close, but I want to walk you through a conversation. The carnal mind of man says it's impossible. God's word says in Luke 18, all things are possible. The carnal mind of man says, but I'm too tired. But Jesus said in Matthew 11, I will give you rest. The carnal mind of man says, nobody really loves me. But God says, I love you in John 2.16. The carnal mind says, I cannot go on. God says, my grace is sufficient for you in 2 Corinthians 12.9. The carnal mind says, I can't figure this out. God says, I will direct your footsteps in Proverbs 3. The carnal mind says, I just can't do it. But God says you can do all things in Philippians 4.13. Your mind says I'm not able. God's mind says, but I am able. 2 Corinthians 9. Your mind says it's not worth it. God says it's not worth comparing the glory that will be revealed in you if you will just persevere. Romans 8.28. The carnal mind says I can't forgive myself. God says but I can forgive you, 1 John 1, 9. The carnal mind says, I just can't manage. 
God says in Philippians 4.19, but I'll supply all your needs. The carnal mind says, I'm afraid. And again, God reminds us in 2 Timothy 1.7, I didn't give you a spirit of fear, son. The carnal mind says, but I'm worried and I'm frustrated. 1 Peter 5, God says, then cast all your care upon me. I care for you. The carnal mind says, but I don't have the faith that I need. And God says in Romans 12, 3, that I've given you a measure of faith, and that's all you need. The carnal mind says, but I'm just not smart enough. God says, that's okay. In 1 Corinthians 1, 30, I give you the wisdom you need. The carnal mind says, but I feel so alone. I feel so alone. God says, I won't leave you, and I won't forsake you. He said it in Deuteronomy 30. He said it in Hebrews 13. He said it in Matthew 28. Saints, we have no excuse. What we need to do is realize that God's word is not cheap and then live like it's the most valuable thing in our life. Are you really hungry for it? Is it really more precious than silver? Or were those cheap words when you sang them? If it is the very word of life to you, you will live your life by it and it will show up in the branches on your tree. Now stand to your feet. Let's pray. cheap trick, but I knew you wouldn't be able to get your mind off that music if I did that. None of y'all even know who that is. Y'all have all been so holy all your lives. Dakota, if I see you a third time, I'm going to consider you a member. I'm glad you're here, buddy. The things that God plants in you will sustain you. They will. You don't need thousands of scripture. You need the one that makes the difference in your life this moment. Mighty God, Lord, we're asking, we're asking that your spirit would plant the life-sustaining word in the people. Lord, that you would war against the enemy for their minds. Mighty God, that you would help them to succeed. You are our ever-present help in times of trouble. Mighty God, you are the shade at our right hand. And we pledge this day to make you our dwelling so that even when a thousand fall at one side and ten thousand at the other, because of you, Lord, we will not fall. You have been with us in trouble and you have rescued us and we call upon your name yet again. Lord, deliver your people. Deliver us safely that we might be your spotless bride. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.